The Interim Leader podcast is brought to you by Odgers Interim, the UK's number one interim management provider. Hi, I'm Bambos Araklis, and this is the Media and Entertainment podcast from Odgers Interim. This month, we're talking music. 20 plus years ago, it became the first part of the industry to encounter a digital revolution. Since then, it's adapted, evolved, and grown. But as the first generation of its digital transformation draws to a close, another one is about to begin. So, how will artists, record labels, and streaming services respond? What are the trends that have developed? And what more change can we expect from the music industry in the years to come? Here to discuss all of this with me is Will Page, a music economist who has worked for PERS for Music and Spotify. Will's work is regularly featured in Billboard, The Economist, and The Financial Times, and he'll soon be releasing his first book, Tarzan Economics. Will, hi. Thanks for joining the podcast. Honored to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's jump straight into it. I mean, there's, there's loads I want, to, I want to talk about. But to begin with, what is a music economist, or as you define it, a, a rockonomist? And how did you become one? Uh, somebody who got very lucky and had a rocking good time doing so. Uh, so a backstory being... For four years, I was a government economist, bored out of my brains, um, doing really sexy subjects like local income tax reform. Great. Um, but during that period, uh, I developed a midlighting career as a music journalist, writing for the magazine Straight No Chaser, which is Giles Peterson's publication for jazz, rap, world music, soul music. I was working with Brazilian funk musicians, uh, Philadelphia hip-hop artists, and had a Batman lifestyle, economist by day, music journalist by night. And all I wanted to do was merge these passions. And for the life of me, and we're talking here about, just to put some vintage on it, 2002 to 2006, I could understand why there was no single economist working in music. There was lawyers, there was armies of lawyers all largely suing the consumer for file sharing, suing websites, suing app devices. But there's no economist, not one. And I wanted to become the first. So not to put a spoiler on the book, which I know we're going to be discussing, but the last words of the book are, don't wait for your job description, create your job description. And I really mean that. I say that to possibly one of the most important executive search companies on the planet, your own, but also to, you know, high school students from lecturing economics. Do not wait for your job description to appear, create one. And what I did was create that job description. I started knocking on doors saying, I believe this business needs an economist and I want to be the first. And Adam Singer, who is the chief executive of the Performing Rights Society, that's a sort of collective organization that represents songwriters and publishers, he opened that door and brought me in. So in 2006, I got to create my own job description, literally from a blank sheet of paper. You know, what does an economist do? I had to make that up. How will an economist help others? I had to make that up too. So it's a real blank sheet of paper. But the key thing there was to see the opportunity, but to not see the role. I think in your profession, you've got a lot of roles you have to fill. I took a different stance. I had an opportunity that I wanted to exploit. And then I created a role to fill that opportunity. It's like that expression, is there a gap in a market or a market in the gap? <laughs> and I've, uh, I've, I've heard you use the lyric before, I think it was Jazzy Jeff, uh, love, love what you do, do what you love. And uh, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a prime example of it, right? I got to interview Jazzy Jeff. Um, yeah, it, it literally is. And the problem there is that you can't stop working. So even when you're not working, you're still working. You're still thinking about music. You're still thinking about this weird business called music. Remember, there was no recorded music industry 
uh, up until around the time of the World War II. So it wasn't there. It wasn't like on the eighth day God developed recorded music industry. There was a live business. But there's no recorded business. So it's, it's had a fairly recent history compared to other industries. But you're constantly thinking, you know, it always has been and always will be voluntary to pay for music. So given that's your benchmark, if you want to use that language, how do we make people pay? Mm -hmm. And that's the beautiful story of what music's had 20 years of dealing with, which so many other industries that you work in, as so many other industries are facing today, is, is when it always has been, always will be voluntary to pay. How do you build a business off the back of that axiom? Mm. We'll come on to the disruption within the music industry and the wider media and entertainment sector in, in a bit. But one of the things which I've, I've learned over the years is that the more I unpick the music industry and learn about it, the more complicated it, it can seem. It's spaghetti. <laughs> it absolutely is. So um, as I see it, um, three core elements to the music industry. You have recorded music, um, you have music licensing, and you have live music. I wanted to focus on the, on the first two areas for the purpose of our discussion today. But just for those who aren't up to speed with the music industry or those two areas, could you just briefly talk about what the differences are and what the key components are to those two? Yeah, I mentioned spaghetti. There's another term I call it called alphabet soup because as soon as you start talking about the music business, you intro acronyms and we, we overdose on acronyms. The business used to overdose on cocaine and heroin. Now we overdose on <laughs> acronyms instead. And there's a lot to deal with. Um, I'll, I'll, let me put forward a different way of cutting up the cake here. I, I think a good way to think about music from a revenue perspective here is business to consumer, which is consumers either subscribing to Spotify or Apple Music or buying what's going to be a £380 ticket to see the Reading and Leeds Festival this year. Mm. So there's consumer spend on the business. And then there's business to business, wholesale licensing. So that would be the Performing Rights Study, who I mentioned earlier, or the artist and label equivalent, PPL, giving the BBC a blanket license, which must come to around about £100 million now, so the BBC can use all the copyrights in the world, and those songwriters, composers, artists, and labels can get paid for it. So I think I'd like to think about it that way. Now, within there, you can start to see how the, the business kind of falls together. You have the live business, which generates far more consumer spend than recorded. Um, that's a trend I'm very proud of pointing out 10 years ago, and it continues to this day. Um, we spend more on tickets than we do on subscriptions. Then you have the recorded business, which underneath also has to work out how it's going to pay publishers and songwriters as well. And that would be the main kind of consumer facing side of the business. Labels on one side, promoters on the other. On the wholesale side of the business is where the alphabet soup kicks in. So there you have the PRS, representing songwriters and publishers. You have PPL, which represents artists and record labels. You have labels, which will do direct licensing for, let's say, a sync for a computer game. Um, and then you'd have publishers who will do their own form of licensing for, let's say, West End musicals or you know, TV, uh, film commercial music spots as well, um, too. So that's a good way to think about it, which is you've got on the consumer-facing side, two fronts, selling subscriptions, selling concert tickets, and on the wholesale side, you've got four fronts, collective licensing for labels and publishers and direct licensing by labels and publishers. So if you can hold those six pieces of the jigsaw together, you've got a pretty good framework for understanding our, our weird and wonderful business. And um, you wrote a, a really great article in the financial, for the Financial Times uh, last month, um, picking up on some of these themes. 
and actually the sheer volume of content which is now being produced. I mean, some of the figures that you That's quoted were, were ridiculous. I think, I think you mentioned that in 1984, there were 6,000 albums released in the UK. And, and as things stand now, 55,000 new songs um, on, on, on a streamer per day. I mean, that is, that is ridiculous. That's uh, insane. Yeah, the article was long overdue because there's this huge debate in our business about whether streaming is fair. And, you know, any person who works in retail, and I know that your, your company covers the retail sector, knows that people who complain are much more vocal than those who compliment. And there's a lot of complaining around streaming. And for me, with the, we have this government inquiry going on. We have 11 parliamentarians really investigating the streaming business, potentially going to announce recommendations that would lead to a wholesale change to our industry. Regulation could come into it. Investigations could come into this. I just felt the point was being lost, which is, you know, when barriers to entry collapse, which is what streaming did, you, you have a situation where supply exceeds demand. There's just so much more of everything. And to your point, I made in 1984, there was 6,000 albums. Rick Astley was one of them. Let's just be clear, you know. Um, and then we have a situation today where I wrote that article and said 55,000 songs a day were being onboarded by streaming services. 24 hours later, Daniel Eck beat me to it and announced it's now up to 60,000 and exclusively for you, it actually put that figure closer to 75,000. So these are not exaggerations. We are literally seeing the same amount of content every day come onto streaming platforms that we would have seen in one single calendar year back in the eighties. And then I went on to point out this is happening in books. There was about 3.5 million ISBN numbers issued, although a fifth of them were new titles. It's happening in TV production. Uh, one new American scripted drama is being produced every single day in America. I think it was around about 490 last year. And podcasts. We have two new podcasts, not episodes, two new podcasts happening every minute at the current rates. So the supply of media content is exceeding demand. And when you have that dynamic, what you get is, is to the headline of the piece, you have A, a business that's making more money, but B, has way more mouths to feed. And that's the inconvenient truth. You know, the job description of a rockonomist is dealing with inconvenient truths that nobody else wants to deal with. And that's the big one that you've got to crack here, which is, yes, the business is making more money, but the songwriter population has doubled in 10 years. The artist population has more than doubled in 10 years. We've got way more mouths to feed. And I really want to drag attention to whatever you do with this inquiry, whatever you do with this industry, this problem will not go away. And it's a positive problem to solve. It's not woe is me. It's wait, we should be celebrating this twice as many artists as there used to be, twice as many songwriters as there used to be. This is a positive problem, but it does lead to some uncomfortable economics. Um, this might be a bit of a loaded question, but the model as it stands in terms of streaming, is it, is it fair towards the artist? It's fair, um, but what I've spent a large part of the past three years doing is working on adding the letters ER to the end of fair and trying to make it fairer. Mm. And this has been a very interesting journey for me. And I owe a huge debt of gratitude to a personal mentor of mine, David Safier, who's for me a walking encyclopedia when it comes to copyright and licensing issues. And we've been discussing this for a while. So <clears throat> when we discuss fair, what is fair? A great example is a little note from history, the origins of the topic fair division, which if we go back to Poland in 1949, ironically for me to a cafe called the Scottish Cafe in a small town in Poland where three mathematicians met and they discussed what is fair division. And 
some of your audience may already know this, but the famous example of fair division is how do you cut a cake? Let's say that we have a cake to cut between us. And the rules are, I get the knife, but you get the choice. Okay, so I get to cut that cake into two, but I don't get to choose which half I get. That forces me to cut the cake as fairly as possible because I'm not in control of the choice. A wonderful, wonderful technique to ensure a fair division of a cake. You add a third person into the mix, then we're going to have preference and envy issues to deal with, like who gets which slice. And mathematics can solve that. But I started to get interested in this topic of fair division, largely ignored by economists. Very few people pay attention to it anymore. And for me, it comes to life here. Now, how do you apply fair division to the music industry? And this, this is, may sound a little bit technical for your listeners, but I trust me, it applies to so many businesses which are moving towards subscriptions. So stay with me. I'm going to keep it non-technical. As it currently stands, the way that we allocate money in streaming is on a pro rata basis, which simply says you get 1% of all those streams that happened in that period in that country, you get 1% of all that cash, which happened in that period, that country. You get your pro rata share of the money based on your share of the overall streams. Seems fair. Can we put the letters ER after the word fair and make it fairer? The argument being discussed by parliamentarians and Today, like half an hour ago, uh, SoundCloud announced progress in this space as well. It's called user-centric, which simply says, can Will's £10 a month for Apple Music be ring-fenced to just Will's music and not aggregated into a pot? So we're not pooling all the cash together and pooling all the data together. We're ring-fencing my private bank account with my artists, my money, my music. Is that fairer? And there's very interesting pros and cons to be had there, but I want to pause there and just come up for air for a second and just say this affects how you distribute money from, let's say, Netflix, or let's take the BBC license fee. I pay, I think it's £150 for my BBC license fee. I consume the Today program and I watch Question Time and not a lot else. Why don't they just get all my money instead of it going to Gardener's Question Time? I don't have a garden. You know, mm-hmm. same debate there about fair division. So it's the thing that's fascinating for me is music is matters because it gets there first. We're dealing with this issue today, just like we were dealing with piracy 20 years ago. Maybe people say, oh, it's a bit of a niche subject for me, but trust me, in five, 10 years time, everybody will be dealing with the same subject as well. How do you cut that cake? The other interesting, I mean, there were many interesting <laughs> parts of the article, but the one which really struck me is how artists are now taking it into their own hands. It's massive. Yeah. So can you just say, explain a bit more about that and some of the different services which are available to musicians? Yeah, this has been uh, happening for a while, but as with so many things in COVID, COVID has accelerated change that was already in place. And the question you've got to ask is when we get back to normal, and there's an interesting website which tells us just how many hours, minutes, and seconds to go before we can have a beer in a beer garden. I recommend that to you. (laughs) A mile to a beer, it's called. And when we do get back to normal, um, how much of that change sticks? And this is one that's accelerated beyond anyone's imagination and it's going to stick hard. So what you have is a situation where streaming platforms have democratized access. Everybody can get to that piece of glass called your smartphone. It's not like you're at the back of the record store at the top shelf and hard to be found. You're the same thumb press away as the Beatles or Led Zeppelin or the Rolling Stones on Spotify. So we've democratized access. We have this huge increase in supply and the role of the intermediary has been kind of called into question. It's not our record labels dead. It's what intermediaries do you need to get from point A to point B? And 
what you've seen happen is the platforms are releasing lots of data and lots of tools to the creators directly. So in Spotify, you can find out what your top cities are, you know, which is interesting. Rather than, are you big in Germany? You may learn that you're just big in Berlin and Hamburg, and that's it. You could plan a tour around that data. Uh, it's ditto YouTube, ditto SoundCloud, ditto Apple and Amazon, and especially Twitch and what they're doing too. But you have data going directly from the platforms. But then you've got the artists saying, well, if I can get my data, my money directly, why should I go through, through an intermediary? And they're adopting DIY platforms, do it yourself. So there are two that I mentioned in the article, um, which are DistroKid EMU bands who are based in Scotland. There's others I should also name check, such as TuneCore, Ditto Music, et cetera. But essentially they're saying, pay us a fixed fee, and on DistroKid it's no more than 30 pounds a year, retain 100% of your copyright and see 100% of your revenue. There's a cost benefit question there, which is, okay, sounds like the land of milk and honey, but you're not gonna have the major label promotional muscle to generate lots of money. So you might see all of your money, but not much money. Mm. So you have this kind of trade-off between you know, make or buy. Um, but the, what you're seeing with the, the DIY platforms during COVID is they've just exploded. So calendar year 2020, major labels, Warner's, Universal, Sony, plus the indies that they distribute for sent 1.2 million tracks to streaming platforms, 1.2 million. That's a lot. Mm. DIY platforms such as DistroKid distributed 9.5 million. That's a ratio of eight to one, a ratio of eight to one in terms of artists doing it themselves as opposed to having labels do it for them. I've been in this business for 15 years and quite frankly, that's the most bonkers statistic I've ever uncovered. And it's getting wider. This is not going away. This, this, this train is now out of control. So yeah, we've seen a very secret uh, revolution happening in the music business. And again, I stress to your audience, it's a microcosm for things to come in other sectors, more disintermediation, more individuals taking control of their own lives, their own copyrights, more going direct to market to see all of your cash as opposed to just some. Another article that you wrote for the FT um, towards the back end of last year, uh, focused on one of the other key trends, which has emerged over the last year or two. And that's artists very well-known artists um, selling their back catalogues for an incredible amount of money to different institutions and, uh, and labels and what have you. Can you, can you talk to us a bit about that? Uh, what's in it for the seller? Why are they selling and what's in it for the buyer? Um, <clears throat> so the, the undercurrent that you're dealing with here is just what I call the, I prefer the earlier stuff effect. So, Throughout the history of time, the bands that we've all fallen in love with, be it through our youth, be it through our 20s, our 30s, and so on, is uh, that they put out a great record, you fall in love with it, then they put out their second record, and it's okay, but you say, I preferred the earlier stuff. And what we need to imagine here is how that worked throughout the formats. Let's say it's a vinyl record. You buy the new vinyl record, you prefer the other stuff, or a CD or a cassette or a download. The point is, nobody knew that you preferred the earlier stuff. You transacted up front to get that new album. You didn't think much of it, but you went back and listened to the earlier stuff instead. What you've got to appreciate is that in streaming, A, we know, and B, it monetizes. Because you're streaming the earlier Muse album that you love so much compared to the new album, which you didn't love so much, that, new, that older album starts to monetize itself again and again and again. And that's been the windfall effect of streaming, which is a realization of just how many people prefer the earlier stuff and the money that pours in from that earlier stuff. And remember, that earlier stuff is 
already recouped its advance, it will already be in profit. This is free money coming in for content that's recovered its cost, essentially. So that's the undercurrent. Then we look at the seller and the buyer. From the seller's perspective, this is not exactly a sexy rockonomics point to make, but I actually think taxation can tell us a lot, which is income that you generate from your catalog will be taxed probably at the, for many of these artists, the higher rate of tax, 45% in the case of the UK. Selling your catalog to somebody like hypnosis means that you get a capital gain, which is taxed, forgive me for not being an expert at the tax code here, but I think around about 20% and less if you're an American as well. So I actually think taxation is the sort of the unspoken taboo topic here of if you were to make that same amount of money every year for the next 18 years on income, you would lose 45% of it. If you just cashed out now with an 18 times multiple on the value of your catalog, you would see 80% of it because capital gains tax is so much less than income tax. So I think the seller has A, their age, uh, their status, uh, all these other considerations to consider, but they've also got taxation as well. And um, if somebody's going to offer you an 18 times multiple, 20 times multiple for your catalog, remember multiples in the past were usually between eight and 12. We're now talking about between 16 and 20. If, if somebody offers you that level of upside and you look at the tax code, you probably want to sell. On the buyer side, I think there's this trajectory logic that the business is going to carry on growing, that this is just the start of the journey. Everything that music's achieved in the past 10 years, you've ain't seen nothing yet. And it's just going to carry on growing like a Northeast trajectory in a investor deck as well. Um, Eddie Q once said, there's 8 million people on the planet and not many of them don't like music. <laughs> Fluffy in its logic, but you know, worth considering for a second. There is 8 million people on the planet and I can tell you most of them will love music. Whether they're all going to pay for a subscription account, different question entirely, but there's this very, very optimistic trajectory from the buyer side, which is you buy into these assets and they're still being underpriced because the future values will just keep on growing. And just on that note, just, just so listeners um, have a feel for the kind of figures that we're talking about, Bob Dylan sold uh, uh, part of his back catalog for $400 million. Um, drinking man what's a businessman's been drinking his wine for too long yeah, yeah. The lyric. <laughs> absolutely uh stevie nicks 100 million dollars yeah. um and then tiktok came along yeah yeah and then you've got um you know you've got the likes of neil young mick Fle- fleetwood calvin harris mark ronson timberland just to mention a few i mean this isn't chrissy hind yeah this isn't a trend which is going to go away anytime soon no it's not um and i i I go back to taxation. Again, it's not the sexiest topic, but I would imagine there's a lot of people wondering whether capital gains tax is going to be equalized with income tax as a post-pandemic way of restoring fiscal balance in the economies. And perhaps there's a fear of sell now while the going is good um, as well. So that's an interesting uh, development. Uh, But it's, it's, I would, of that list of people who have sold, it's worth just acknowledging they are what you'd call heritage artists yeah. as opposed to currently active artists. I don't think Neil Young's going to put out a record today that's going to be as good as Harvest, which came out before I was born. So it's very, you know, worth remembering the stage of the artist's career and, and the decision to sell as well. You've also got um, established artists and relatively new artists re-recording old material. Right. Yep. For copyright reasons, which is another another new phenomenon. So very interesting there, because when, when I was given the chance, I mean, the Financial Times has been huge supporters of my work. And they said, we're going to give you a whole page in Life and Arts and run up to Christmas. What are you going to discuss? And I always remember meeting Max Martin, the great Swedish songwriter, 
and he expressed a frustration that Def Leppard weren't on Spotify. And that's like, when you meet the person who wrote the hit for Britney Spears, Hit Me Baby One More Time, and basically penned the vast majority of 1989 for Taylor Swift, what's he going to say to you? And his first words were, why can't I hear Def Leppard on Spotify? It's like, <laughs> interesting. Then I got into like, why? And the backstory there was that Def Leppard were really unhappy with their record contract. They weren't seeing enough of their revenues and they wanted to renegotiate. And what they threatened to do was to re-record their albums or re-record their hits as it were, and put those songs on Spotify to which they would control. There's a great lesson in copyright here, which is the songwriter owns a song and you can never take away the ownership of the song, but anyone can record a song, including the artist, can re-record and own that recording. So Pour Some Sugar On Me and Rock of Ages were both put on Spotify as re-records of the original. It's like, wow, I love teaching students about copyright and this brings it to life. Like if you own the song, you can do what the hell you want with it. Re-record it any number of times. Roll forward to the 2021 and what do we have just now? We have Taylor Swift drip feeding re-records of her entire catalog onto Spotify. Why? Because she's upset that Shamrock Capital's acquired her back catalog like it's a tradable commodity. And she's got no say of what happens to those rights, no control or ownership of those rights. I mean, she signed a contract, let's be balanced and fair here, but she's entitled to re-record her entire catalogue and say to her fans, don't stream that song, stream this song instead. Um, and that's just a quirk of copyright. Uh, but you can see it now. She is, is, if you follow her on any of the social media platforms, she's beginning to leak versions of those re-records as well. And it'll be interesting to see where the way the fans work do they want to hear the original because it's the original or do they want to support taylor in her quest to retain her masters and uh, stream the records as well you um will be discussing a lot of these topics no doubt in your new book uh, tarzan economics mm-hmm. which is due out in in april is that correct april fool's day what a publication day that is <laughs> same same day that boris johnson promised we'd get out of lockdown make of that what you will interesting tell us a tell us a bit about what we should expect from the book and, and the type of themes you'll be picking up on Let's wheel back to that last line of the book, which is don't wait for your job description, create one. And I got lucky in that I got to merge my passions, music and economics, become, I think, the first ever rockonomist and just be able to create my own job description and dealing with disruption that nobody could have predicted or prepared for. But the big passion for me is music matters because it got there first. It was first to suffer. It was first to recover from disruption. And now because of the pandemic, Everybody's staring at their, what I call their Napster moment. Everybody's staring at the same scale of disruption that we dealt with back when piracy and online file sharing became a thing back in 1999 even. So what I thought I'd try and do with the book is if my passion is teaching economics, and it's not just teaching economics, it's teaching economics to a certain type of audience. And my dad taught me this lesson when I was 11 years old. He was a maths and economics teacher at a high school in Scotland. He said, you need to focus on an audience who... A, doesn't think they're going to understand it. B, doesn't want to understand it. But C, has to. That's your audience. Teach economics to them and you can make a difference. And that's what I've tried to do in music for the past decade and a half. And that's what I'm trying to do with the book. I've given it the subtitle of Eight Principles and Pivoting Through Disruption. And these are like eight lessons, eight transferable lessons that will stand the test of time, stand the current pace of disruption, but help everyone from Ogders to a lawyer, to a journalist, to an accountant, to a banker, deal with disruption. So for example, you were discussing, you know, DistroKid and DIY artists earlier. And there's a chapter in a book called Make or Buy. At what point do you make it yourself? And what point do you seek control to an intermediary and buy in their services? 
regardless what happens to digital disruption, that question, that principle will remain relevant and present throughout. And in that chapter, I talk about the story of Radiohead, the rock band Radiohead from Oxfordshire, and their journey was in rainbows. If you remember in 2007, they did it themselves and released an album um, by themselves and actually offered a voluntary tip jar pricing model so the fans didn't even have to buy it. So they'd made instead of buy and the fans didn't have to buy it to get what they made. It was a revolution at the time and it was a real chance for me to work exclusively with the band to tell that story, to make it transferable to everyone else. Now, that was then, this is now why we're discussing an album which dropped in 2007. If you look at what Kickstarter and especially the company Patreon are doing now with tip jar models and subscription, direct subscription to creators, this thing is blowing up. Like this is scaling fast. <laughs> Two days ago, we just saw that Jack Dorsey, uh, the owner of Twitter and Square has just acquired A, a bank and B, Tidal. And the, everyone knows he bought Tidal and he's done a deal with yeah. Jay-Z. What they haven't spotted is he had bought a bank 24 hours before. So he's now looking at direct payments between creators and consumers. So this thing is going to go ballistic, but at the heart of it and at the heart of chapter four of the book is that principle of make or buy. At what point do you do it yourself? And at what point do you get so big that you have to seek control and get the support of others? So this book will be like a sort of, a navigation, a map uh, of how to get around disruption with these principles. So I'm looking forward to seeing how it applies to everybody else. Forget music for a second. This is for everyone outside music dealing with what we've had a 20-year head start dealing with. And and looking ahead, uh, where do you see or, or what do you think the music industry will look like in, in 2030? How will it develop over the next 10 years? Well, one of my core functions at Spotify was investor relations. And that's a real investor question, which is forget the next quarter, tell me the next 10 years. Where does this end up? Um, I, I, I think what's fascinating um, with the music industry that you're seeing at present is the effects of globalization, which results in two things that nobody thought would have happened. Um, there's a fantastic charity called Doctors Without Borders. So I'm going to credit them with this play on words. I call it Playlist Without Borders. Like you as a consumer in London, staring at a piece of glass, looking at what you're going to listen to for the next 45 minutes, what you're going to allocate that scarce attention to for the next 45 minutes, do not care where that music comes from. The algorithm does not care where that music comes from. So you could be traveling the world of music without any intent. So music's traveling like never before. So you take the song Despacito, um, a Spanish language hit that traveled. That was just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the success of Spanish language Latin repertoire traveling around the world. Indeed, it's actually hard to be a Spanish act in Spain at the moment because you're in competition with Spanish language acts from Latin America. It's a great way of thinking about globalization effects, which is if you speak to Spanish record labels, like we can't promote our acts because we've got all this Spanish language music infiltrating us. Positive problem. <laughs> I take pity, but it is a positive problem. So barriers are breaking down from the consumer side. The other thing that's really interesting and again, unexpected is the global music business has got bigger over the past, let's say, 10 years, but it's also got more American. And I guarantee we'll see this trend continue on March of 23rd when we learn the global value of music again, which is America used to make up around about a quarter of the business globally back when streaming got started. Now it's up to well over a third, moving towards a half. And that's a very interesting story of globalization on the consumer side, Everybody's experiencing with different cultures. Music is traveling like 
ever before. But on the business side, you know, as with globalization and economics, where poor countries are supposed to catch up with rich ones, we've all been taught that at university, which is controversial because A, it may not be true, and B, it might actually go in reverse. What we're seeing is that the American share of the global business has increased massively and looks continue to do so. So I think consumers will be more globalized than ever before, but the business will be more American than ever before in 10 years' time. Where do you see live music going? Um, it's, it's coming back here in the UK, thanks to the incredible vaccination effort of the government and all the health services. Um, Reading and Leeds are sold out. I think that's important to say, which is the ticket text will be having a field day. In fact, the economist for me says, let's not discuss live music, let's discuss the market for ticket touting post-pandemic. That'll be interesting. Um, but I, 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 I've got a really important point to make here, and to, I really want it to be as transferable as possible to your audience, which is during the pandemic, we've seen an explosion in live streaming, massive explosion. I was fortunate to work on the Billie Eilish live stream which was an incredible event, the kind of uh, VR uh, imagery that's put around that performance. Um, you know, learning lessons, time zones matter. You know, Europe was fast asleep when she was on stage and, you know, live streaming has to learn by doing as you're working through this stuff. But uh, you've seen Twitch explode for musicians as well. Like Twitch has become this platform where you own your channels, so you own your music. So it becomes that user-centric model that, this conventional streaming business doesn't offer. So my key point is this, live streaming won't go away when live music returns. So the only question you should be asking is, how are they going to coexist? And that question is deeply transferable to many of your clients at Odgors, which is we've seen change, we've seen innovation, and we're gonna get back to normal. How much of that change and innovation goes away? How much has to stay and how do they coexist with the new normal? Are we going to see live streaming backstage become the norm before those bands go on stage and play to a huge muddy field in front of 60,000 strangers? Are we going to see bands work out who their true fans are through live streaming whilst playing to their passive fans out there in an open festival? Mm. So I'm really, really hot on this debate about how are they going to coexist because I think it's another microcosm that everyone else can learn from. And also part of part of what we've seen over the last year or two, even pre-pandemic, um, was how the music industry was embracing gaming and vice and vice versa. And for me, that's another really yeah. fascinating angle to to see how that progresses over the next few years. Yeah, hundred percent. And so the third chapter of my book uh, is called "Paying Attention." Uh, it's my passion of attention economics. Just on that note, I called the chapter paying attention because in English, that's what we say, but it's worth spotting the word paying as a currency hint to it, right? If you speak in Swedish or Spanish or French, it's giving, sharing or offering attention. You don't ask people to pay attention, but in English, the most dominant language in the world, it's a currency expression. I want you to cash in your attention chips here. So where I go with that chapter is to look at contestability and look at how if one form of attention wins, others may lose. If I binge watch three times 10 hours of Narcos, which I did whilst I should have been writing the book, um, that's 30 hours that my book didn't see, but it's also 30 hours that Spotify and Apple Music didn't see. It's also 30 hours that Instagram didn't see. Netflix won and everyone else loses. To quote Reed Hastings, you know, sleep is his biggest form of competition. So when you start to get into the contestability of attention, um, you really start to learn about the value of gaming. Uh, I'll kick this off with a very 
a worrying step when Animal Crossing launched during the height of the pandemic last year, I think it was around April, May, Animal Crossing launched, the average duration of a gamer's playtime was nine hours. <laughs> that was the mean. People were forgetting to eat. This is a tension with Russian performance enhancing drugs on top. This is incredible. So my fascination with gaming happened through that because it's, again, it's a microcosm for working out. Yes, gaming is niche and yes, it's just that kid on their computer, but what you can learn from gaming is huge, especially when it regards to winning attention. So if you look at music and attention, I think the obvious contender here is what Travis Scott achieved yeah. with his performance in Fortnite. And again, I was very fortunate during lockdown. I got lucky. I'm supposed to be writing a book, but you get to work on the Billie Eilish live stream and the Travis Scott data, but to have an understand what happened with Travis Scott. And it was incredible to see just how many people he reached, how much virtual merch sales he achieved in what a 48 hour spell by performing on Fortnite. No articulated lorries, no travel visas, no insurance, none of those overheads that come with live touring, yet achieving far more upside by putting a performance in the inside of Fortnite. And that's going to continue. There's no secrets in tech. You only have to look at their job support to work what's happening. And if you look at Roblox, they're hiring a music team. If you look at TikTok, they're hiring a music team. If you look at Fortnite, they're building a music team right now. So you can take a horse to water or you can bring water to a horse. I don't think you can take the complicated spaghetti of the music industry and apply it to gaming. So you have to take music to the gaming culture, as it were, and put music inside the game, as opposed to waiting for gaming to come to music. And I think that's going to be a big trend over the next 18 months. You're going to see much more events like Travis Scott performing inside Fortnite um, or Lil Nas X performing inside Roblox as well. So you're going to see a lot more of that, but it's winning attention that might otherwise be lost. Everyone talks about winning attention. The economist, the doer pessimistic Scottish economist has to remind you that the opportunity cost is it's attention that might otherwise be lost. It's only so many hours in a day. Gaming is grabbing a lot of it. Netflix is grabbing a lot of it. So if you're music, you know, where do you sit in this field? You know, you can't expect them to come to you anymore. You've got to go to them. Do you, look at other areas of the entertainment industry and in the same way you did 10, 15 years ago, wonder why isn't there an economist as part of a team? Do you look at, say, film, um, publishing, TV, sport? Do you look at football? I think I think the same thing now. Yeah, I, <laughs> there, there will be economics. Uh, there will be consultants being brought in for a let's say expert witness during tribunals, for example, is where you'll see, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, where you'll see uh, the role of economists take a very prominent role in producing evidence there, but that's not day to day. You know, uh, the CFO at Netflix said to me, your job description is to help me see around corners. I love that. <laughs> like, a man of very few words, just like your job is to help me see around corners. And that's a great role for an economist in the company. And if you haven't had one in your business, then how do you know what's around those corners? Um, you take a, the cinema business just now, it's staring at its own Napster moment, as you know, with the streaming windows being collapsed and people going straight to, straight to Netflix. And I think the sports industry that you mentioned is also in dire need of economics because they're staring at, you know, all that attention that they used to control before lockdown has gone elsewhere. The question they're not asking is, how do you win it back? Mm -hmm. It does not mean that once we lift lockdown, people are going to pay for their you know, sports rights like the way they used to, or they're going to go to the games like the way they used to. And it, for me, it's just, 
what do I want to say here? I want to use the word complacency. I think back in the late 90s, Mutant 3 had been so successful. You know, in the book, I talk about this wonderful story about how they used to buy and sell CDs by the weight of pallet. So it's like, hey, I got a pallet of CDs here. You want to buy it? <laughs> how much does it weigh? 30 kilos. What's on it? I don't know, Shania Twain. It's all going to sell. Just give Robson and Jerome even. <laughs> so it, it was their excess. People, you know, record label executives taking helicopters to their private jets. They were so, they climbed this huge mountain. They got complacent. Piracy came along and chopped their legs off overnight. And I just think that there's other sectors in media which have got complacent. I think sport is one, newspapers are another, and it's coming. Like that, that wind of disruption, that rising tide of disruption gathering around your feet is going to keep on rising. And yeah, I, I think having an economist in the company is a great way of being able to see around corners, be a great way to be able to deal that inconvenient truth that the, the person in finance, the person in law doesn't want to say, but has to be yeah. said. I go back to the lesson my dad taught me when I was 11 years old. It's, it's the audience who A, doesn't think they're going to understand it, B, doesn't want to understand it, but C, has to. You know, How do you reach that audience and avoid getting sacked? You master that balancing act, you can have a successful career as an economist. It's been fascinating speaking to you. Please come back again at some point. I'd love to. I'm sure we'll have, have more to discuss. Uh, remind us again when the book's coming out. So the book Tarzan Economics, Eight Principles in Pivoting Through Disruption. It's April Fool's Day is a publication. And for a global exclusive, tarzaneconomics.com has just been acquired from GoDaddy. Thank you, GoDaddy. <laughs> and that's going to go live in the next few hours as well. So we have a website, a beautiful website, uh, lined up to help with the book. And I just, just stress to your listeners, the book is not there to say, it's not egotistical bragging rights. I got to work at Spotify. It's there to help. Yeah. Yeah, everybody else is staring at their natural moment now. We've got a head start dealing with this. I really hope these eight lessons are going to help. Lawyers, accountants, I can think of 100 professions that are going to need yeah. this book. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to, uh, to reading it. Thanks again and uh, see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really hope you enjoyed listening and don't forget to like and subscribe for new episodes in our media and entertainment series. 